Welcome to the Bounce Podcast. I'm Bob Lapine. The Bounce Podcast is a part of the Great Commission Collective. We're a ministry that is all about churches coming together to plant new churches and to strengthen leaders so that the gospel can be spread throughout the entire world. If you'd like to find out more about the Great Commission Collective, go to our website, gccollective.org. I serve on the board of directors for the Great Commission Collective. I'm also a local church pastor. I pastor Redeemer Community Church in Little Rock, Arkansas, which means that every week I have to be thinking about our corporate worship. What is our corporate worship experience going to be like? That means working together with the musicians who will be a part of that event, with the sound team, with the, the folks who are handling the projection that's going on. We have to get together to make sure that corporate worship happens in a way that people can be actively engaged, can take part in what's going on. Corporate worship really is about the people of God coming together and uniting to worship God together. In fact, one of the things I say to everybody who's a part of the team, we have a very strict vocabulary. We don't talk about the stage. We talk about the platform because we're not doing a performance. We don't talk about the audience. We talk about the congregation because it's not an audience. It's participants who are with us. And we talk about uh, our presentation coming together being a time of corporate worship. And that's the focus for today's podcast. We're going to be joined by Matt Merker. Matt works with Getty Music, the uh, the ministry that Keith and Kristen Getty have started. Uh, he is a, a part of that team. Matt has also written a book called Corporate Worship. And there's more information about his book that's in our show notes. Uh, or you can find out more just by Googling the book Corporate Worship. And Matt is also a, a worship leader and a hymn writer. In fact, if your church has sung the hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast, that is an old text that Matt put to, uh, to modern music. Uh, he is the songwriter, the, the, the music writer for that particular hymn. And we chatted recently about all of the elements that go into a healthy Christian worship service. Matt, welcome. Thanks for joining us. And a lot of us as pastors, we grew up thinking when you're talking about worship, you're really talking about music. It's like we have we have the worship service. That's the music portion. And then we have something else. Corporate worship is an encompassing, inclusive term. You wrote about this in your book, Corporate Worship. From the beginning of our gathering to the end of our gathering, all of that's supposed to be worship, right? That's right. Yeah. When Paul, when Paul talks about corporate worship, I, th I think the longest section in scripture that gets sustained attention to what the church does when it meets is 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, really 11 to 14. And in chapter 14, he talks about a, a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, an interpretation. All of that is going on when the church gathers to exalt God and to edify one another. I think for many of us, we grew up in, in the modern evangelical age where your liturgy was, you get together, you sing three or four songs, and then somebody gets up and prays and preaches and says, amen. And he says, we'll see you next week. And that's it. Is that an insufficient liturgy for corporate worship? Oh, insufficient, that's an interesting word. I, I would say it's not wise or it's not ideal. I don't think it's sinful. I certainly grew up in a church that was very much that way. I, I think if you look historically, Protestant churches have often had interspersed readings of God's word. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. He says in 1 Timothy 2, to lift up all sorts of prayers. 
uh, to God. So historically, Christians have had prayers of praise and confession and intercession, uh, songs and hymns and psalms and spiritual songs sung, as, as well as the teaching of the word, the giving of offerings, celebrating baptism and, and the Lord's Supper, which I don't believe you have to do those every week. Oftentimes, those elements are arranged to reinforce the storyline of the gospel. We, we can begin by praising God for his holiness. But when we consider the fact that he's a holy God, it makes a lot of sense to then confess our sins to it. Once we've confessed our sins to it, it makes a lot of sense to remind one another that God has sent a Savior for our sins and to then thank God for the Savior and for the gospel. And, and, and so there, there's no prescribed liturgy with an uppercase L in the Bible, but I do think there's patterns and principles and wisdom that we can see in some of the biblical passages with God meets with his people to ratify the covenants. Uh, and also we can see some of that wisdom in church history. And a lot of these elements that we're talking about, I grew up in a mainline church where this order of service was pretty regular, but honestly, Matt, a lot of it just felt like we were going through the motions every week and I wasn't getting a whole lot out of it. I didn't see the gospel story. I was just kind of, we were mouthing. In fact, in some ways, I felt like we were violating Matthew 6, where it says, when you come, don't just repeat your vain repetitions before us. I, I think we took this turn and said, we're not going to do anything like that because that's just boring and lifeless. And maybe throughout the baby with the bathwater. Yeah. That, and that's a great point, Bob. Spirit-led, spirit filled corporate worship and worship that uses forms or prayers that have been pre-written or elements that have been passed down through history are not mutually exclusive. You can, you can have both. Our worship should never be lifeless and rote and lacking passion and emotion, but it also should not be lacking depth, uh, historical rootedness. Uh, we want all of these things together. And so at my church, some might come in and find it to feel slightly more like a high liturgy. We, we have a call to worship from God's word and then a prayer of praise and then a song. Unlike some churches, we don't have any like fog machines happening while it's going on or any sort of keyboards in the background to make it sound cool. It's just, it just sort of happens. It's very plain. It's very simple. Those leading it, whether that's me as a music leader or whether that's one of our pastors or elders, try to, to with a lot of passion, inform people what's going on briefly when you're not preaching a sermon. But you want to make it worshipful. Welcome. We've gathered to praise the good creator and redeemer, Father, Son, and Spirit. Let's go to him now in prayer. And then maybe you use a prayer. And now let's read scripture. And now let's sing because our hearts are full of gratitude for his gospel. And so we, we want to have both the sort of structure of a well-ordered service, but also the, the passion of those whose hearts have been changed out of hearts to, of stone to hearts of flesh and made alive in Christ. Let's talk about the collaboration on what that corporate worship experience should be like. You're working with a teaching pastor who is going to be the one who's going to be bringing God's word on, on the morning that you're leading the music portion in your setting. Who's in charge of mapping out what those elements should look like and how it's going to execute on a Sunday morning? First off, I think God has given us the elements of worship that he wants us to use in scripture. He's told us to preach the word, read the word, sing the word. But Understanding that, you know, Jesus is the main worship leader. He has also given us under shepherds. Uh, in our church, the elders feel a responsibility and a stewardship for what happens. Everything on Sunday morning teaches. The songs teach, the time of offering teaches, the prayers teach. And the elders have largely delegated to the senior pastor, uh, Matt McCullough at my congregation, the role of sort of mapping out the order of the service. So Matt and I, we just did this today. You know, we meet at nine o'clock on a Tuesday morning. We were looking at his text. Uh, this week, he's preaching on John 1, and Word Became Flesh. Uh, 
that we're recording this kind of in the Christmas season. And so at our church, we're, we're in John 1. And so uh, we just started kind of batting around ideas of uh, songs and scripture readings that, that would kind of focus us in on the incarnation and this idea that in Christ, we've received grace upon grace. Well, yeah, it's, it's collaborative. I, I came up with suggestions and, you know, we're, we've got our Bibles open and we're praying and we're going back and forth. And if he, if he says, hey, I really think we should do this song and I don't think our congregation sings it very well or I don't think it matches with the sermon very well, I'll, I feel free to, to share my opinion. Ultimately, I'm going to submit uh, because I, I'm a very part-time staff member there. He's an elder. He's the full-time pastor. He's the boss. Uh, but, but, but likewise, I might be really passionate about a song. He, he might disagree. And so we just try to handle those as brothers who, who love one another, who have the same goals in mind, the same priorities. And that's how we plan. So it takes us about a half an hour. Are you working with a pastor who understands how the music works as a part of corporate worship? Because some guys are just going, you do that magic stuff that you do with music. I don't get it. I, I'm not musical. How important is it for a local pastor to to kind of understand how God uses music in a special way during corporate worship? Oh, I love that question. My, my pastor loves music and is personally quite interested in music, although he's not a musician. Previously, I served with Mark Dever at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and Mark knows a lot about music and personally has a deep interest in not just church music, but all music. I don't think that pastors need to be musicians or understand music theory. I, I think the way you phrase the question, I really like, I think a pastor should understand the power of music. Mm -hmm. God has given us music as a great gift. He's the creator. He's the great artist. Zephaniah 3, God rejoices over those he redeems with singing. Right. We're created in his image. So I think pastors should care about music, study it. Uh, I don't mean that formally, but they should seek to deepen their understanding of how music moves us and how music can help us remember the truths that we sing. And so I think if a pastor just says, I'm tone deaf, I really don't understand music. Well, of course, y your job is to understand what the lyrics are stating. Are they true? Are, are they not just true? Are they beautiful? Do they fire and kindle our imagination to a greater devotion to Jesus? And then work with those who are musical in your church to collaborate and to understand, are these songs beautiful melodies for our community? Our community is not just going to be able to sing, but it's going to love singing. They're going to want to sing it in their car with their kids. They're going to want to sing it at the breakfast table. Hymns, as we say at Getty Music, hymns to carry for life. Hymns that will teach you and that grow deeper the more and more that you know them. So whatever your level of musical training or background, you want to endeavor to understand that because hymns are part of your word ministry at the church. And we, we're often very sermon-centric as we think about Sunday morning corporate worship. Those of us who preach regularly have that kind of a sermon-centric mindset. And yet there are things that happen in the service through music that can't be accomplished or won't be accomplished regularly through the preaching of God's word. We need to understand that and appreciate that and recognize sometimes it's that song that got sung that was more powerful in someone's life than anything you said during your sermon. Yeah, I mean, it's both and. Preaching is essential. And those of us who preach should take it extremely seriously. What a responsibility, what a gift, what an honor and a privilege. But at the end of the day, most of the folks listening to this probably do not have any of John Wesley's sermons memorized, <laughs> right. as powerful as they were and as formative as they were for a whole denomination, a whole movement. But if I say, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, you can say, my great Redeemer's praise. Mm -hmm. Or hark the herald angels sing, glory to, to the, the newborn, newborn king. king. Yeah. 
which are lines that his brother Charles wrote, and we remember them because they've been set to music, and we take take them with us for our whole lives. It's not just, though, the doctrinal catechism that comes through the lyrics of great songs uh, that we do carry with us, but there is a kind of emotional engagement, appropriate emotional engagement that happens during during corporate worship, during the singing, that will happen differently because of how God created music and melody and song to connect with us in a way that kind of uh, doesn't bypass our head, but it gets to the heart in a way that that preaching often does not get to the same place. Sure. Again, it's it's both and. Uh, we're, we're whole beings, and we're called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. By the way, I just want to mention the, the point I made about John and Charles Wesley is taken from a good book on this subject uh, by Chris Anderson, Theology That Sticks. And if you're trying to understand good categories of songs or how to evaluate songs, Chris does a nice serves in that book, Chris Anderson, Theology That Sticks. I'd like to recommend that and credit him for that, that Wesley illustration. But yeah, you're exactly right, Bob. The, the Psalms are full of emotion and truth. And the Psalms are full of similes and metaphors and word pictures that speak to our hearts. And they're full of suffering and lament as well. It should be reflected in our, in our sermons and preaching as well. And so I often will say that the sermon, but Luther said the sermon is the centerpiece of the service. But Luther believed in the power of songs. He edited his own hymnal. He knew that the gospel of justification by faith alone was going to spread through the German-speaking world if they could change the song. So Luther cared about both. And I often say it's a, it's a win if the songs preach the points of the sermon in photo negative. They set up the sermon. And, you know, sometimes that's more subtle in certain weeks, but it should all be one unified message, one unified story throughout the service as much as possible. So you will key off as you're selecting songs, the text is essential for you, more essential than than how the, you know, we need to start with a, an up-tempo, fast energy song, and then we need to switch to something that's a little more subdued. How are you mixing all of that together as a musician? I, I consider those factors as well. Those are fine considerations. We do usually start with something up-tempo. I need that because I've got two little kids that I'm trying to get to church, or my wife is usually getting them to church since I'm rehearsing. And I just know people come in and sometimes they're tired and it can be, help, it can be helpful to start with an upbeat song. That's not a rule or a law. Yes, a lot of churches, this, this was something that many churches kind of did in the 80s and 90s would start with a hand clapper, <laughs> little upbeat kind of gathering song. Then they would go to a hand holder, which was a medium song about God and what he's done. But then they go to a hand raiser, or now we're sort of into the throne room. Is there is that fine to do? Yes, it's fine to do. Is it necessary to do? No, the Bible doesn't tell us to do that. I think it's best if the songs integrate with the sermon text. But also, like I said earlier, it's, it's helpful if the whole service has a kind of narrative flow or reinforces the story of the gospel through, through the different elements. That's going to look different from denomination to denomination cultural context to cultural context. It's going to look different from week to week. But those are some of the principles that we're balancing as we try to put the service together. And integrating um, music together with a prayer of confession or with an assurance of pardon or with some kind of a profession of faith, do you think there's a best way to do that? Or do we just find our own way in doing that? I don't think there's a best way. I, I think oftentimes it makes most sense when you've just confessed sin and perhaps you've read an assurance of pardon from Scripture. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Then you sing a song about coming to Jesus. Mm. Or if your you know, assurance of pardon is 
from him, we have all received grace upon grace, John 1. You think grace greater than our sin. It just makes sense. It's pretty obvious. I'm going to have you weigh in. I'm going to take you to where fools dare to tread here. Uh, there are there are churches that have said, you know, we're not going to go with songs that are coming out of theologically suspect environments, even if those songs seem to be okay, because we don't want to take people down down the path that might lead them to error. And that's been with Hillsong or with Bethel, primarily Elevation. Some of those have come up where people have said, we're just going to avoid those songs, even if they're in the top 25 on the CCLI charts. What do you think? I don't care where it is on the CCLI chart. That doesn't matter. The positive question to be asking is, what are the songs that are true, beautiful, full of rich theology and poetry? with melodies that make your heart want to soar, melodies that can be sung by an eight-year-old kid or an 88-year-old man and that are going to sustain us through all of life, songs on all the topics of the major headings of systematic theology, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the attributes of God, the Holy Spirit, missions, evangelism, the return of Christ, you name it. So the source of a song is a legitimate consideration for pastors, and I believe it's a Romans 14 issue that Christians can disagree on, and that when we disagree, we ought to honor each other's consciences. I understand some Christians have a conscience against using a song, but this is a theologically orthodox song because of the person that wrote it or the quote-unquote ministry, or in some cases, company that published it. And, and that's okay because that's a, they have to determine to what extent that's a discipleship issue for their church community. If they believe their church could be easily led astray into some false teaching because you use a song from that group? Sure, don't use it. Although I will say you're also the ones teaching your church, so you should be teaching them to be discerning. So yeah, there's there's a number of considerations there. I point people to Romans 14. There's a lot of great songs out there. So thankfully, we're, we're not starved for options. In other languages, it's a little bit perhaps more like when, when the gospel is going to a new place in the world and you're trying to think through what songs are available in local languages, because some of those ministries you named have been pretty aggressive yep. in exporting their songs and other translations. So, I mean, I could talk about that question for a longer time, but I think that's probably all the time it needs. <laughs> and and, and we, I think we have to keep in mind that even some of the, the, the hymns of the faith that we have revered for centuries, I'm thinking that um, it is well with my soul. The, the songwriter went off the rails later theologically, didn't he? Yeah, he, he started a cult in Israel, basically. Yeah. But so, it's, it's less dangerous, I think. You know, it's, if, if we sing it as well with my soul, it's probably less likely someone in my church is going to look up the hymn writer and go online and find, find all his writings and do a sort of deep dive. Because Horatio Spafford doesn't have Instagram. You know? <laughs> <laughs> He's not actively propagating his teaching. So there, there is a, a, a difference. I, I think it's a difference of, of degree, not kind. But others may, may disagree with me. Um, at my church, I, I have no problem saying that we, we, we sing a couple of titles from Hillsong. We don't go advertising, oh, we think you should go check out Hillsong, because I do have serious theological concerns with Hillsong's teaching. Uh, but we have not found that, that those songs are a danger for our particular congregation. I'm happy if folks disagree with me on that. I think that's something we should be able to talk with other believers about with charity and patience. How important is it that we're singing songs that are 100 or 200 or 500 years old? Well, I think that's really important, particularly because Paul commands us to sing the Psalms, 
So we should be singing the biblical Psalms. That doesn't mean we need to be singing them in Hebrew. You know, we, we can sing them translated in English and set to, to meter and verse. It, it would be pretty foolish, I think, to, to disregard, especially for an English-speaking church. There's very few people who will ever write in English that can surpass Watts and Wesley at their best. Uh, and so why would you give that up? You can, you can set it to new tunes if you think the traditional tunes are, are not musically appropriate for your congregation, but it's important for us to show our continuity and solidarity with the saints of old and the cloud of witnesses. And singing is one way we can do that. And the pastor who's gone, nobody in my church would know grace greater than all our sin because what they know is the top 25 on the CCLI chart. Yeah, it's kind of like saying, you know, my church doesn't really like to eat great steak because they have McDonald's. <laughs> I'd say, well, you, you need to take them to the steakhouse more often and, and bring out some of those real, real delicious meals that, that God has given us through the ages. So, so introduce them, teach them, make them a part of what you're doing. I would encourage that. But yeah, do it gradually. And, and a lot of people sometimes will associate those old hymns with a particular style of instrumentation or arrangement that you heard in your mind that that song can only ever sound like grandma's church. But what I would say is hopefully, you know, if pray that the Lord would give you musicians who can take, even if it's the traditional melody, a great melody can be done in so many different styles. You can change the instrumentation, you can change the approach, and you can make it sound like your church instead of grandma's church, but you still have that great, beautiful melody and those amazing old lyrics. So if I'm thinking about three buckets of songs, the the old traditional hymns that some in our congregation grew up with and know and love, the new modern hymns that some in our congregation have heard even on the radio or on their Spotify playlist, they love those songs. And then there are some songs that in our congregation, our congregation knows those, but a visitor, a guest is going to go, I haven't heard that song before. Do I need to be wise in my designing of a corporate worship service to make sure that we're not doing, if we're doing four or five songs, that three of them are not our congregation specific so that someone who's coming in can join with us in corporate worship? Yes. <laughs> You're exactly right. <laughs> and and the, the reason for that is because we do want those who are joining us not just to be spectators or to be left out, right? Correct. I, you know, we, with the church's public gathering, Paul envisions uh, non-believers even attending in 1 Corinthians 14. I don't think that means we should cater our services to visitors and, and what they expect or what they want. I think it's okay if a visitor comes in, that it feels like a church service. That's, that's what it is. I do think we should explain our terms. Uh, we should speak directly to visitors or non-believers. Uh, I, I don't think we need to have them stand and sort of reveal themselves. Uh, but I think, you know, and Mark Dever does a great example. Let's just go to CapitalHillBaptist.org and at CapBap.org and listen to some of Mark's sermons. He'll always say, if you're here today, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. And this is part of his sermon. He'll just, he'll just kind of take a point of the sermon and say, you know, we're here, we've been talking about the image of God. Have you ever wondered why human beings are capable of such good things, justice and beauty, and yet why we seem so broken and why there's still wars and genocides? Well, the Bible has the the most coherent explanation for human nature. And he'll just kind of talk to them on an apologetic level. Uh, I, th I think it's good for us to do that. I think it's good for us to consider that in our song. So yes, like even today, when I was planning this Sunday service with Pastor Matt, 
we were trying to figure out what song to do at a certain point. And we, we are doing one that our church knows. It's a it's beautiful carol that I wish more churches knew. It's called Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. Let all mortal flesh mm. keep silence. You got it. It's a medieval hymn. <laughs> a lot of visitors who, there's a couple categories. There's the non-Christian visitor. I don't expect them to know any of our songs, but I want to do songs that are simple enough that they can sort of listen and understand. Then there's sort of Christian visitor. I'll sometimes think if someone grew up in the church or if someone has attended a Christian wedding or funeral in the last 20 years, is there any song they might know? So we actually picked in Christ Alone because I think that's actually become something of a modern classic. But that's where you think of songs like Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, Be Thou My Vision, Amazing, Amazing Grace. Grace. There you go. On right. Christ the solid rock I stand. Praise the Lord the Almighty. A mighty fortress is our God. I could go on. So there, I'm, I'm sure there are pastors who are listening who are going, man, I wish I had a guy like Matt Merker who was the worship pastor at our church, but instead I've got this guy who who loves, the, you know, all of the modern stuff. And it's just like he wants to do Phil Wickham every Sunday and just, just really get after it. And so what does that pastor do? Well, first off, Phil's a good guy, and Phil Wickham's got a couple of really good songs. <laughs> he does. But it's a great question. Uh, I, I, it's it's part of discipling. It's part of training up the next generation of leaders to just to just, you know, expose that young man to to a good variety of songs. I will say the Together for the Gospel Conference. One of the things they did was every every time, not every time, but many times they would release an album with the singing. It's just a grand piano and ten thousand pastors, and uh, there's some really approachable but beautiful, rich hymns on there. And because it's just a piano, it's pretty easy to transfer. Even if your guy's a guitar player, there's not a lot of arrangement or instrumentation to kind of wade through. You just think, oh, okay, I think I, I think we could do that song. So those songs were all really handpicked to try to put on the bottom shelf and say, hey, if you're trying to, to do more of a, a variety, not just the top 10, uh, you know, here are some of the greatest that we would recommend. How do you go about teaching a new song to a congregation? I put it in our church newsletter, which comes out on a, at some point in the week and say, hey, we're doing a new song. So listen to it at home, listen to it with your kids, all that kind of stuff. Then when church happens, if it works well in the order of service, I like to actually, while they're seated, uh, talk a little bit about the song briefly, just a word of explanation on why the song matters, why it's beautiful, why we're doing it. And then team will sing like a verse and chorus so that they can just listen and meditate on the words and kind of absorb the melody. And then I'll ask everyone to stand and sing it together. Uh, and then I try to do it like three weeks in a row and then make sure over the next six, 12 months that we're, we're doing it a, a, a lot, you know, pretty often at least once a month to kind of get it into the bloodstream. I think you can really only successfully introduce like eight to 10 new songs a year max. And so you really need to be focused on the best 10, right? Absolutely. I often say that church leaders, when it comes to picking music, we're like a museum curator. The great museums of the world, world all have a ton of paintings and sculptures in their archives, in the basement that you never see because the curator picks the best to display. Right. So yeah, you, you want to be selective. That doesn't mean you have to agonize for hours every week. You know, generally, like for my church, we'll do this once a trimester where we'll sit down and say, hey, what are the three, four, five songs we want to introduce over the next four, six months? And you know, then we'll take an hour or two, we'll listen to songs, we'll get, get some debates, we'll drink some coffee, we'll have a fun time, and we'll come up with our list. What about instrumentation? Do you go with what you have available? That's a good question. You go with not just what you have available, but what is going to enhance, support, and beautify congregational singing 
and be glorifying to God without being distracting. In some churches, that could be a full orchestra. In some, it could be a really great rock band. In a lot of churches, it's going to be a piano and guitar. Just because someone has taken a clarinet lesson in their life doesn't mean they need to use their clarinet gift on Sunday. On, on the other hand, if your church has a professional clarinetist, and I will say this is where I diverge a little bit from my mentor, Mark Dever. I love him, but I, I, would, I would say that it could be good to find a way for that clarinetist to serve, not on every week or on every song, because I don't, I don't know... This is the thing. Some instruments are just better suited at accompanying congregational singing than others. So that's the job. That's the, that's the goal. It's not that everyone who can play an instrument gets to, a chance to play their instrument because there's other settings for that. That's maybe it's a Friday night evangelistic concert where you do a classical concert or a jazz concert, singer songwriter night and have some, some gospel testimonies. That's great. But when it comes to God has, has commanded the church to meet and he's commanded the church to sing. New Testament doesn't tell us which instruments to use. So there's Christian freedom and prudence. Then, okay, how are we going to use whatever instruments we have to best equip the church to obey those mandatory commands? Obviously, they're more than commands. It's not just a duty. It's a delight. But you know what I mean. I'm going to see if you, uh, if you agree with my pet peeve here. Where should we be pitching our songs for congregational singing? We should be pitching them in best range for the whole congregation, uh, which means if the worship leader has a high voice, he, he or she needs to pitch the songs lower where it's less comfortable for the leader to sing in order that everyone in the church can sing. Traditionally, the phrase for that was from C to shining C, an octave from, for a man, you know, low C up to middle C, and for women, the octave above that. Really, you can get away with low A to high D, and it depends how musical the church is, how, uh, how comfortable they are with singing. But yes, I'm a firm believer that it needs to be arranged for the whole church to, to, sing, to be able to sing the melody confidently. I, I hear from so many men who tell me the songs feel too high for them, and then they have to go an octave low, and it doesn't sound good. It doesn't feel good to sing all the way down there. Again, the, there's no chapter and verse from Scripture I, that's just prudence and Christian freedom that I have a very strong opinion that I'm right about. <laughs> well, and, and, and I have said, we really can't do songs that have octave jumps in them, where you start low, and then the second time you sing it, you're supposed to be an octave higher, because while the worship leader may be able to do that beautifully, the average person can't do that, and they wind up dropping out and not singing. And corporate worship is not about a performance, it's about corporate singing. Couldn't agree more. You know, I, I'm a, I've studied music. I enjoy all different kinds of music. I think that's kind of a weird musical trend that's going to sound dated in a while. There's just not a lot of other music that does that, that sort of great, timeless, classic music. So we've zero. I started off by saying corporate worship is about more than music. And then we've spent the last 25 minutes talking a lot about music. Would you say there are other elements where it's non-negotiable? If you're going to have a corporate worship service, you better include a prayer of confession or it's been incomplete. It doesn't have to be a prayer of confession per se, but prayers, co corporate prayer. Uh, I don't think the Bible's specific on how many or which types, but I will say that is lacking. Whenever I visit churches, prayer often feels like kind of a stitch between two sections. You know, we just did a bunch of singing. We're about to have the sermon, so there's going to be a, a prayer in between but it's, you almost get the impression that it's just so that the band can kind of get off the stage and they're going to move some things around. Um, so actually giving time to prayer. 
a pastoral prayer where you pray for the needs of the church, you pray for the needs of the community, you pray for the gospel to spread, you pray for the persecuted church, you pray for different nations of the world. You show that you have a global perspective, that you care about all of God's world and all the billions on this planet who do not know the Lord Jesus. Uh, so I, I think it's good to devote time to prayer. It's not flashy. It's not impressive. Um, and it's boring to non-believers. And I think we need to be okay with that. In that sense, that, that part of the service isn't for them directly, but they will listen. They will learn. And if they're curious and intelligent, they'll, they'll be trying to understand why you're praying about these things. So we don't need to be afraid of doing some things in our service that are really for Christians. It's a Christian service. But if those prayers or readings or song are full of the content of the gospel, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, the unbeliever is listening and he, he falls down on his face and worships the one true God. So the Lord can use these gospel-saturated prayers evangelistically. In addition to the book that you've written on corporate worship, there's an event that you're part of every year that's designed to encourage and equip uh, worship leaders. It's, it's a great event. Tell everybody about that. Yeah, well, Bob, you're there most years too, and you're part of what makes it great. Uh, it's called the Sing Conference. It's in Nashville, Tennessee. It's through Getty Music. Uh, so Keith and Kristen, Getty, who I work for, host it. And it is a wonderful time. I, I like to say it is like a combination between a pastor's conference and a huge sort of exhibit hall of all your favorite Christian ministries and a track of really practical seminars and a music festival all in one. Um, so it's just a wonderful time to, to listen to some really gifted Christians play some excellent music to the glory of God, but to hear expositional preaching, uh, practical workshops and breakouts. Uh, there's a choir that sings. There's an orchestra of Christian classical musicians that plays. Uh, so that is a, a highlight of my year. You will not sleep, but you will be edified. Um, it is just crazy fun. It's usually around September next year. It's September uh, 3rd to 6th in 2023. So it's Labor Day weekend. It's in Nashville. We try to get all the fun folks in Music City to come and play. There's a, a million guest artists, sometimes surprise guest artists who pop up on stage. And uh, the congregational singing is amazing. It's a bunch of people who love to sing. It's a bunch of choir directors and music ministers and pastors and children's choir directors. And uh, they sing in four-part harmony. And uh, it is just a joy. It really is a joy. And <laughs> you're right. You will not sleep, but you will all be changed in a moment. So we'll just throw that in here. Matt, thank you for this and uh, and and for the work that you're doing and may our worship be better, not just artistically and aesthetically, but more pleasing to the Lord, because at the end of the day, um, even an out-of-tune voice with the right heart is better than a well-tuned voice that is going through the motions, right? Amen. Make a joyful Amen. noise unto the Lord. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. We've been talking with Matt Merker, the author of the book, Corporate Worship. There's more information about the Getty Sing Conference in our show notes. Again, it will be held in Nashville in early September. There's also information about Matt's book, Corporate Worship, available in our show notes as well. And we hope that this episode has been helpful for you, not only as a lead pastor, but I hope you'll share this with your worship pastor or the musicians who are a part of planning your corporate worship service so that our worship services together can glorify God in, in important ways and so that the people who are attending our worship services can be drawn into corporate worship, not just as spectators, but as active participants in the worship of God. 